Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. A few minutes ago, President-elect Donald Trump saying in a statement he intends to nominate Rex Tillerson, the chairman and CEO of ExxonMobil to be Secretary of State, saying he was, quote, one of the most accomplished business leaders and international dealmakers in the world. And here for some perspective on that is Gideon Rose. He's the editor of Foreign Affairs magazine, Peter G. Peterson, chair at the Council on Foreign Relations. Gideon, good to see you. Good again. to be here. Uh, let's start with uh, with this nomination, this pick to be Secretary of State. I was thinking ahead to what these confirmation hearings uh, will look like and what will be discussed. And it strikes me that for the first time in a long while, they're going to center on business much more probably than the, the candidate's vision uh, for foreign policy. Um, well, it'll. I think it's the relation between those two, which is the question for Tillerson is he has extraordinary business experience and extraordinarily extraordinary skill. Uh, how does that apply to foreign policy, and and what is the carryover? Is there a difference between what you do as head of uh, Exxon and a difference in what you do as Secretary of State, and how does that play in? And of course, the Russia angle is going to be a major topic of concern. Well, let's pull on some of those threads there, and and first look at the the similarities, so much as there are some between running a big multinational company like. And, and the State Department. We know uh, of the bureaucracy of Washington, how Byzantine uh, the State Department is, like uh, many other agencies in, in Washington. How much of a deficit will that be uh, to come into running an organization having no familiarity with, uh, with that bureaucracy? Well, on the one hand, running any kind of large organization like that and doing it successfully has a lot of experience that can carry over, and so that's really good compared to a person taking over who hasn't managed anything. On the other hand, the restrictions on what you can do running a government department as opposed to, and running an independent foreign service as opposed to running a company in which you're the CEO, uh, you can do a lot less. And I think that even uh, President-elect Trump is going to find that, which is that just because you're president doesn't mean you're the CEO of the entire country and you get to order every everybody in the government to do what you want. Uh, and we just don't know how the independent institutions of the Foreign Service, the Armed Forces, the Civil Service, how all how the Trump administration is going to react if those parts of the permanent government and Congress have somewhat different views on policy. Let's look to, to history as a guide here. How important is this relationship between a president and uh, and his secretary of state? It's, it, first of all, the answer is with all cabinet appointments and all relationships, it all depends on the president because the president is the ultimate decision maker and gets the uh, the deputies that he wants and runs things the way he wants to run them. So uh, the Secretary of State relationship is obviously a crucial and important one. But one of the big things in this administration that I think that we're all going to be looking for is to see what the relationship between the White House and the NSC on the one hand and the various cabinet departments is. We've had a concentration of power in the executive in and in the White House in recent years. Uh, will that change in this situation? Will people like Tillerson or uh, General Mattis or uh, Steve Mnuchin or 
other people have uh, more autonomy and power than they've had recently, because right now the White House itself seems to be staffed up less and less impressively than the department's. What does this uh, this decision telegraph to you about the foreign policy priorities of this incoming administration? You mentioned uh, Rex Tillerson's ties to Russia. We've seen the photograph of him and Vladimir Putin know that he's received this uh, award from the head of, of Russia. He's done a lot of business there. Does it give you the sense here that this administration will be, if not fully focused, heavily focused on the relationship with Russia on day one? Well, it does suggest that there's going to be a change in the relationship to Russia. And it also suggests that deal making and business skill is something this new president-elect takes very seriously. The question is, how does that play into existing American foreign policy? And in Russia in particular, you haven't just been about deal making with Russia. You've been criticizing them. You've been opposing them. And how is that going to play out? And we just, again, don't know yet. And and, uh, as some senators have already said, they're going to question this. Um, I think he'll get through ultimately, but how this plays in even to the story about Russian hacking into the election, mm-hmm. there's an odd yeah. Russia angle to all this that nobody really knows yet how far it goes. Gideon Rose with us, Foreign Affairs uh, Magazine. I have the new issue in front of me, 180 pages. I can't say enough about it for the price of uh, one of David Gurr's artisanal martinis over in Brooklyn. <laughs> you can have a year-long subscription, and it will make... Uh, all wiser. I read it cover to cover. This issue, Tim Geithner on lessons learned from the crisis, Robin Niblett of Chatham House on liberalism. And there is a spectacular article from Catherine Newman and Hella Winston on U.S. manufacturing that will shatter all of your preconceived conceptions that are like mine wrong. Gideon, the institutional mix here, the testing, the uncertainty I hear in your voice there, I, I guess you don't work in a vacuum. Who does a secretary of state turn to in Washington, besides the Council on Foreign Relations, and to read Foreign Affairs magazine to get wiser faster? Is well, there a bureaucracy to help them? So this is a great question, Tom, because, of course, there is a major bureaucracy. You have an intelligence community that is uh, professionally uh, charged with keeping tabs on the world and providing accurate information. You have a foreign service. You have a uniform military. Uh, you have a civil service. And those people are all really superb professionals by and large. We often deride them as bureaucrats, but the fact is they're often very serious, competent professionals who work very hard behind the scenes to uh, to get things right. And one of the things that people are worrying about or are looking at with concern is the new uh, the transition, at least, uh, apparent lack of connect with the uh, the professional staff, as it were, of the government, uh, as evidenced by uh, not just the the president not getting the intelligence briefings, but also dissing the concerns of the intelligence community when it comes to things like the Russian hacking. Mm. So the professionals who you would think would be the people you're going to rely on for your staff right now are a little bit concerned mm. how uh, they're going to fare in the new administration. If I look up diplomacy in a, in a thesaurus, I don't think that deal making would be a, a word there next to it. Are we right to use these interchangeably? Uh, is deal making the same as diplomacy? Deal making is not the same as diplomacy, but it's not true that di- deal making isn't a part of diplomacy. Uh-huh. It often can be. The question is what kinds of deals, with whom, and what's the overall strategy guiding them? So, right now, so uh, one of the things that we're not clear about people don't like uncertainty, and for good reason, right? Uh, the the uh, Things like the call with Taiwan 
uh, and the question of is our China policy going to be overturned? I mean, the U.S.-China relationship is the single most important relationship in the world over the next generation. It could bring untold prosperity to both countries. It could also bring conflict and economic disaster for the world. So messing around with that and not even knowing – people not knowing how much – the new administration is messing around with that is kind of a, a an uncertain trumpet at this point. I look I look to uh, natural security, national security, and natural security. The issue of climate change. Uh, you have Rex Tillerson, who has been somewhat ahead out front of that, more so than perhaps the, the president elect has been. How big an issue is this going to be for the State Department going forward, holding to that agreement that was agreed to uh, in Paris a few months ago? I don't think this is necessarily going to be just a State Department issue. I mean, no. you have a head of the EPA who uh, might have different views than Secretary Tillerson, and and even uh, uh, the president-elect uh, has had different views on the subject on the campaign trail versus what his businesses have said when they're actually uh, coming up against things mm. like uh, rising seas. So it, it, we just don't know. Gideon, thank you so much. Gideon Rose. Um, so much to do with Foreign Affairs at Magazine. Uh, out of order, the future of the international uh, system. It is their issue just out. I really can't say enough about the previous issue on populism as well. Fortunate to be joined by Barry Eichengreen, professor of economics and political science at UC Berkeley, currently a distinguished visitor at the American Academy in Berlin. Shortly uh, after the show today, he'll be delivering a lecture on the populist turn in American politics implications for Europe. That uh, lecture arranged by the American Academy in Berlin and the Schumpeter Seminar at Humboldt University. Uh, Barry Eichengreen, great to have you with us. Hi, David. Hi, Tom. We were a few weeks ago. Tom and I were in the audience as uh, Christine Lagarde gave a, a, a speech here uh, at Bloomberg. She talked about people talking about deglobalization. Uh, she was worried about the prospects for deglobalization. Who in this day and age is making the case for uh, globalization? I don't think that uh, globalization really has uh, uh, business advocates, political advocates, hyper-globalization at least, of the sort that we experienced prior to the financial crisis. What were uh, I think settling into is a new normal in terms of globalization, or that would be the best outcome we can hope for. Um, we had hyper-globalization where trade and financial flows across borders were growing faster than the global economy, but that was driven by China, a story that's over. That was driven by global supply chains, a story that's over. That was driven by financial deregulation, which is over. So I think settling into a new equilibrium where um, uh, trade financial flows and the global economy are all growing at about the same rate together is uh, a better situation than uh, uh, having trade trade and international finance outstrip uh, the real economy. We see the tendency here toward looking inward, uh, maybe to rejecting a lot of the multilateralism that we've seen over these last few years. You've looked at, at history. You talk about equilibrium. How cyclical uh, is this? Do you, do you expect a period of inwardism followed by uh, then a, a, a more multilateral view of the world again? I think we will suffer through a period of um, uh, looking inward if policymakers do not do a better job at getting economic growth going. So I think um, faster growth heals a lot of wounds economically and politically, and, and, and more successful economic growth could lay the basis for uh, a little bit more 
uh, enthusiasm and support for the multilateral system. So that's assuming a positive outcome. Mm. It would be nice if it happened. Barry, help us here with the core Eichen Green knowledge, which is our exorbitant privilege. I love chapter four of one of your great short books, Global Imbalances and Lessons of Bretton Woods, Sterling's Past, Dollar's Future. That was written a few uh, years ago. Do you just maintain within all of our international relations and the president-elect's daily dynamics that the dollar will be our exorbitant privilege? The um, great advantage Mr. Trump has is the same one John Connolly had when he said, it's our currency, it's your problem, in that there are not viable alternatives to the dollar. So even if there is uh, more uncertainty and instability in the United States, there's really nowhere to to flee to uh, for the moment. Over time, the Europeans might get their act together. The Chinese might get their act together. But I think for the yeah. time for the time being, it's all about the dollar. Some would say your most wistful book is The European Economy Since 1945. Buried in the middle of it is toward the golden age. Nobody right now buries looking for the golden age in Europe. We're doing a 10-for-1 reverse split on Unicredit. Another bank, you know, that's been around since you began teaching at Berkeley, is going down the tubes. Uh, the unrest that we've been talking about with you through the morning. Where is the golden age? It's out there somewhere. I know it's about growth. Is it really about technological progress? I think it's partly about technological progress. So Europe's golden age was supported by the fact that Europe was starting out behind and it could import technology from the United States in in the third quarter of the 20th century. And and even after that, it was partly a matter of political solidarity. So Europeans were able to pull together in part because of the Cold War and uh, um, wanting to keep the Soviets out as it were. I I, I think now there are both uh, technological headwinds and and political headwinds that um, the Europeans would have to surmount, that they're unlikely to surmount. uh, um, So um, another golden age is not in the cards. We've, we've watched this low and slow global growth, and, and we've seen here the, the fracturing of a big uh, international trade deal. Talk, if you would, about the relationship between the two things. In other words, is it possible to have an uptick in global growth here if we don't have the kind of robust trading uh, that might lead to it? I, I, I think the robust trading system would be a consequence of better economic growth. There'd be more support for openness, as, as we were talking about a moment ago, rather than being the engine of uh, faster growth. So I think the engine, you know, has to be started at home through uh, uh, fixing the financial system in Europe through a better balance of monetary and fiscal policies and uh, uh, trade growth will follow. One of the great moments of my career at Bloomberg, folks, was enjoying seeing Professor Eichengreen battle in Singapore a million years ago with the worthy emerging market central bank chief over the future of India. Uh, let me cut to the chase. Mr. Green got the debate right. He got an A. The other guy didn't. David Gurr, my uh, book of the year, Ken Rogoff, The Curse of Cash. It's a brave book. It's the kind of book Barry Green would have written. And then it talks about cash. He hedges it. He shows the weaknesses of his argument. He brings Otmar Issing, the acclaimed German economist, into it on page four. And then he does a thing on negative rates. But 
you know, we talked to Professor Rogoff. Even he didn't expect what's occurred in India. Right, and we've we've seen a real political backlash there. And, and Barry Eichengreen, I wonder what you you make of this of uh, a a of uh, of Ken Rogoff's argument and B sort of how it's played out. Not exactly uh, how Ken Rogoff prescribed it to take place uh, in India here over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, distance between Ken's careful book and the not-so-careful policies that uh, they've adopted now in, in India. As I understand it, the argument for doing that kind of monetary reform and doing away with big bank bills is to crack down on uh, money launderers and drug traffickers and, and other people who uh, use $100 bills and 500 euro notes. What they've done in India is remove so many banknotes as to create hardship for shopkeepers and, and, and poor people without making other provision for them. These are people who are underbanked, uh, not necessarily because they're uh, evading taxes, but simply because they're underbanked. And I think that's where the, the backlash uh, comes from, that the, that the measure was poorly targeted. Let's take a step back and talk about reform more broadly. We can talk about that as, as one facet of reform. You're, you're speaking on uh, reform in Europe, populism in Europe today. Where do things need to head, as you see, when it comes to say, banking regulation in Europe? Uh, we, we've heard uh, the cries for the removal of, the, the revision of Dodd-Frank uh, in the U.S. What's the future of regulation here in the year 2017? Well, in Europe, I think they have a, a problem with the new resolution regime where they make it very hard to uh, inject public funds into bad banks and to undercapitalized banks. And that's part of the reason why progress in resolving the Italian banking problem has been so slow. In, in the U.S. case, it would obviously be reckless to remove Dodd-Frank before you had other ideas about uh, a substitute for it. So to go back to pre-2007, bank regulation um, would not be a solution, obviously, to any of the uh, unintended consequences of, of Dodd-Frank. So it's easy for populists to object to, to measures in place and to criticize Dodd-Frank. It's much harder to, to see what they're going to put in its place, and we're, we're waiting to find out. I can read. I wonder what you've heard in the conversation, the ongoing conversation about uh, the prospects for an infrastructure spending package here uh, in the United States, uh, how that could be most effective if, in fact, there, there is one, uh, and whether you are cheered by the fact that what's being promoted here, it seems, is a sort of public-private partnership model. Well, I think what we um, want to see is, is uh, infrastructure spending that actually in, in increases the productivity of the economy, not white elephants, but, but productive investment uh, infrastructure projects. We don't have any uh, evidence that that's what we're, we're going to see going forward. Mm -hmm. the, the real question is whether uh, infrastructure uh, projects go to the uh, states uh, of the president's friends and uh, political allies or, 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 or business partners, right. or whether they really go to enhance the, uh, the pro productivity and efficiency of the economy. With dollar strength, Professor Eichengreen, how close are we to the strong dollar policies of the late 90s into 2002 or to the Plaza Accord world of uh, a lifetime ago? 
I think we're very, very, we're, we're a galaxy away from the Plaza Accord. We're not going to get that kind of uh, agreement internationally, especially given the uh, diplomatic and geopolitical tensions that are, are, are coming down the road. I don't think it's this administration's policy to support or maintain a strong dollar, but that's what they're getting, mm -hmm. obviously. Uh, from the the expectation of, of increased uh, deficit spending, I, I would add to, the, to uh, what you asked, Tom, that those of us who worry about protectionism have more reason to worry given the strength right. of the dollar. Well, thank you so much, Barry Eichengreen, this morning from our studios in Berlin. David Gurr and Tom Keen worldwide. This is Bloomberg. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. We now turn to what do you actually do in banking? Uh, joining us, buying Fortress Diamond at the absolute bottom, David Harrow. Uh, he of Chicago. He of Harris Associates. David, uh, once again, congratulations with being out front on ownership of banking shares. And it has been a test of Harris Associates and your patience. Do you celebrate this morning the restructure of Unicredit? What does it mean for your portfolio? Um, first of all, we never celebrate in this business, Tom. You should know that. <laughs> um, the unit credit news is good because it shows that some proactivity is finally occurring in Italy. Uh, it is their biggest bank. We do have an Italian bank, but our Italian bank doesn't have any of the issues that that Unicredit has. Um, Unicredit has been selling some assets, which is good. They're raising capital, which is good. They're really fortifying themselves. And if they could get this Montepesce di Siena um, situation fixed and get the NPL situation fixed, they'll be on their way. But our view was a lot of these European banking shares were just selling at too low prices. They were overly reflecting um, the bad news that's in Europe and not reflecting some of the positive things that were happening. And so we, we thought it was an opportunity. And it took a while for the shares to perk up, but they're finally doing so now. What are what are some of those positive things that, that are happening in Europe? Uh, you know, when, when you, well, we, hear, we do hear the bad news more often than the good. Oh, yeah. First of all, you have uh, the plateau of slowing growth. Growth seems to be picking up a little bit. Second of all, you have loan losses have actually declined pretty much across Europe. And it's been kind of a, a source of profit in a way because you're just seeing higher quality credit uh, than what you have seen in Europe. You're actually seeing some credit growth uh, in the low single digits. And you're seeing banks proactively cut fees. 
So at the beginning of the year, when everyone was fearing that these low negative rates would smash earnings of banks, we haven't seen bank earnings be smashed. In fact, we've seen some stability or slow growth. Right. And David, I gotta I gotta make some money back because I keep losing and betting against the Packers. Uh, David Harrow, should I be acquiring European bank shares this morning? Yeah, I think they still. I think there's certain. Certain banks, again, as you know, Tom, we're really uh, stock selective, company selective. And I think certain of the high-quality banks that are still selling at attractive valuations, BNP Paribas, Tessa Sao Paulo, Lloyd's, uh, Credit Suisse, these are things which still offer very, very good value. All for their each individual uh, company has its own reasons, really, but they're selling at low prices. And I believe almost in every one of those cases I mentioned, you're going to continue to see earnings growth. Can, can you attribute the, the political stability uh, that we're seeing? I mean, are, are looking back at that referendum, and it seems now that you do have Italy, as you say, taking a more proactive approach here to, to, to these banks. Can you attribute that to the referendum? And, and we got the news yesterday that Pierre Carlo Padron will stay on as, as the finance minister in that country. Are you convinced we're going to have a stable enough environment there to get these reforms done here in the, the near to medium term? Well, I think there's just really a strong motivation to get these reforms done. And one of the most important things is on these NPLs is the collateral uh, and enabling the creditors to uh, make a call on the collateral. In Italy, this process takes 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years. And everywhere else in the world, it takes one or two years. And that puts that causes those NPLs to be worth a, a lower price. Uh, maybe 20, 25 cents on the dollar versus 30 or 40. And they're working on this. This this is known. This is a known issue that they have to accelerate um, the resolution process in Italy. And, and this step alone would be very meaningful because, because it would almost uh, increase the price of these NPLs, uh, the ones that are selling at 20 cents on the dollar to 30, 35, in some cases 40 cents on the dollar. And there is a ready market for it. You see... Um, you know, various financial firms in there buying these NPLs. We, we know that the, the banking sector is so overbanked uh, in Italy. How do you position yourself, uh, you know, g- given there's likely to be some, some mergers here in the, in the near term? Yeah, this is one of the uh, bits of good news. Uh, Spain did this a couple of years ago very successfully, and they basically told all these co-op banks, uh, the game is over. This is a, You have to be a for-profit entity, and if you can't make money and raise capital, you're out of business or you're merging with someone else. Now, finally, they're doing this in Italy. Uh, Germany also needs for this to happen. The Landesbanken, these are these regional banks that are kind of state-owned entities that just don't exist to make profits. So they're, they're lax on credit. They chart. They give too much interest, and they're non-economic, hurting the companies like Deutsche Bank, which can't compete. Well, Italy is ahead of is actually ahead of Germany in trying to get these co-op banks merged yeah. uh, and capped up. With us, David Harrow, international investment, particularly of a more large cap uh, variety. David Harrow, help me here. I'm on the couch. It's December 27th. I got to reallocate my 401k. What is the Harrow attractiveness? of U.S. multinationals versus international big cap? Yeah, I think you still see a little better value in uh, non-U.S. multinationals. Uh, certainly, there are certain sectors that the U.S., uh, I think, offers very good value. And if you look at the U.S. financials as, as just one example, and maybe even some of the U.S. industrial names, I think, uh, are looking attractive. 
What you've really seen more than a geographical bifurcation, you've seen uh, industry sectors because for about two-thirds of the year, you've just had the wave of money going into what was viewed as safe and safety. Uh, And sectors like industrials and consumer discretionary and financials were ignored. And I think these are the sectors that are finally starting to perk up a little bit. The valuation differentials are just way too high. And and economic growth is not falling off a cliff as their valuations would have suggested. In fact, one could even argue that we're starting to see an acceleration in global uh, GDP growth. So this is where you really want to be in these economic sensitive names and, and financials, industrials, consumer discretionary, and um, you know these some of the other areas like utilities and some of the healthcare names, consumer staples. Still, you're paying too much for the uh, stability that you get in these things. So I think that's where investors should should look in the economic sensitivity area, whether it's U.S. or international, uh, European, this is where opportunity lies. When you look at things on a sector-by-sector basis, do you you subscribe to the belief here that we are seeing a so-called Trump rally, or was that rotation underway well before the, the election? You know, it actually did start a little bit before the election, and I think you could go back to post-Brexit. You had a huge Brexit shock, and then two or three weeks after that, you started to see some return to normalcy in markets uh, and, and less of this uh, knee-jerk, rapid response. And so you saw finally maybe in August and September, even October, a little bit of what I would call a leveling out of these valuation differentials. And then when the election came, it just it started to accelerate. And I think we're probably in the third or fourth inning. They're still given valuation differentials. This is the key. Look at the prices you're paying for businesses. And if something like Daimler is uh, eight or nine times earnings and something like Unilever is 18 or 19 times earnings, when you see these big gaps between companies that actually grow at not such dissimilar rates, there's opportunity to be had. Do you, do you see the market becoming more earnings-driven here uh, in the near term? Uh, absolutely. I think this, this macro obsession, which investors have had, is perhaps uh, starting to wane off. And uh, evidence of that would be what happened uh, post the Italian referendum when it wasn't necessarily good news for the markets, and you really saw very little reaction. And so maybe uh, investors are beginning to realize that these macro and global political events do not matter as much as a company's ability to grow their earnings and cash flow streams and what they do with them. Yeah. But I would actually prefer, as a bottom-up value investor, I want them to be obsessed with macro because it gives us opportunity. David, one final question. Uh, It's been a challenging year for so many people in investment. What's your enthusiasm for the ownership of equities into next year? Uh, It's pretty high. Um, Not as high as it was six months ago, just because valuation. We've moved, yeah. Yeah, we've moved. But I still think, uh, especially I'd much rather be in equities, growing earning streams with good yields than in bonds, which are the prices of bonds are going to go down. David Packer, Super Bowl bound? I don't believe so, Tom. I would love to sit here and tell you yes, but I have to be honest. 
I still think yeah. our defense is suspect. I'm okay. really happy to see Aaron Rodgers coming out of his funk. I mean, the last right. couple of games, yeah. he looked really good. But the defense is just too weak. Okay, uh, Tucker, be sure that goes out on Bloomberg. Uh, Attribute that to Super a Packers, a Packers shareholder. Spirit. Packers shareholder. Uh, he's just, you know, if we were interviewing somebody up at Bloomberg 1200 Boston, we wouldn't be having this conversation. They'd be like all Tom Brady. <laughs> David Harrow, Harris Associates in Chicago, and of course, the gentleman from uh, Wisconsin. David, uh, I, I have been remiss. Dow Jones year to date, thirteen point six percent. Wow. S and P five hundred double. John Tucker double digit. I say ten point four percent. I have to update the four hundred one k. I'm just. I'm in the triple leverage all cash fund. I'm getting killed. NASDAQ up 8.1%. NASDAQ composite. Up yeah, how's that retirement plan looking? Uh, you know, because it's not that far off, David. The only retirement <laughs> plan. I think it's I, next year. Uh, yeah, thank you. The only retirement plan I have is a surveillance cactus uh, casket. Casket. Cactus. I like cactus. <laughs> yeah. Cactus. There'll, there'll the, be one the, growing on top of it. Yeah, the bright orange <laughs> casket. We'll bury in the desert okay. somewhere. Oh. Thank you. Oh, there we are. David Hero, that was there we great. Are. by the coastline with the smell of salt air in the midtown air. John Tucker's going to be cold like Thursday. It's like, like, well, yeah, we are. As Boston winter. would say, wicked cold. Wicked cold. Uh, 20s. Yeah, I did. Uh, 20s. Have some, you have uh, no idea how warm pond, that is. The uh, pond is frozen uh, by the yeah. Tucker house. Not uh, safe enough to skate on just yet, but yeah, it's getting there. Speaking of skating, that takes us to freshwater economics. <laughs> A breath of freshwater economics <laughs> just wandered in the room. Charles Plosser. Uh, is the esteemed former president of the Philadelphia Fed, which carries its own historical baggage with it. But far more importantly, Professor Plosser, uh, out of Rochester, is known as someone who has looked at the saltwater milieu of the East in the certitude of Chicago to the West. Sounds brackish, Tom. It's uh, well, the brackish <laughs> economics <laughs> to the West. Nobody's really sure what you're talking about. The brackish about, but... economics to the West to note Rochester, Virginia, and other freshwater climes. Professor Plosser joins us now. Are we heading towards a freshwater fed? Is that really, is it, that's an interesting question. And in that after the death of the Phillips curve, the lack of inflation, finally we're going to get our Trump reflation. Is it a freshwater moment in economics? It's an interesting way to put it. Tom. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I think not so much. I mean, the, the, um, I think freshwater has so-called freshwater economics has a lot of good things that it need, that needs to be implemented at the Fed, but the you know but the economics is the staff mostly at the Fed and and um, and they are decidedly um, a big institution and they're only going to change very slowly. Right within that is where the IS curve is. What is your perspective of where the real economy is? represented by that ancient simple model <laughs> well I, I, is curve is is the wrong way to think about economics but that's why everybody does it well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I knew you were gonna say that <laughs> but the fact is that's how business gets done OMG the is curve is terrible do something right that's modern economics right unfortunately modern economics has been heavily influenced by Keynesian models and versions that somehow the whole world is is driven by demand and and it's very difficult to get macroeconomists in general, but certainly 
the Fed to think outside of that demand view of the world. And uh, I think it's been illustrated pretty clearly over the, this crisis and recession that there's a lot more going on here than just lack of demand. And I think that, um, uh, you know, as well as I do, Tom, I'm, I'm an old, I'm not an old, I am old, but a, a real business cycle guy. And I think if you mm-hmm. look at a lot of what's happened, it's about productivity, which is really what the supply side really is all about. What is most concerning to you right now when you look at the, the health of the, the U.S. economy? Well, I think it's productivity. Yeah. That is the big concern. I mean, if you think of why growth is slow, it's about productivity. And none of our macroeconomic models, generally speaking, not just at the Fed but elsewhere, none of them have a mechanism very easy to build in what happens to productivity, why productivity moves as it does. So if you think, like I do, that much of the productivity slowdown is at least or at least partially attributable to sort of a massive uh, shift in sort of the regulatory state, if you will, mm-hmm. If you think that has an impact on productivity, the Fed's models never were capable of building that effect in because they're so focused on the demand side of the economy that there's no mechanisms for how a productivity might evolve. When you bring up the the, the weight of the regulatory Mm -hmm. environment, looking ahead here to what might happen in in 2017, 2018 with regard to regulation – do you see that as potentially changing productivity? We just not know enough about what could what could jumpstart it uh, in the new year? Well, I think we don't know enough yeah. at this point. I do think there, there are two things, obviously, that, that have been stressed, and that is, A, fiscal policy, which would be sort of traditional Keynesian stimulus, which is to stimulate demand, and fiscal policy actions that would focus on enhancing productivity in various ways. Those are very different types sure. of policies, and the question is, what will we get? I, can I go wonk right now? Please. I mean, I mean I, I've got to do this. Kittlin and Prescott, 2004, Nobel Prize winners. Many arguably suggested Plosser should have been added to that name. Professor Plosser, when you look at business cycle theory, the modern bringing in the supply side into demand dynamics and all that Kittlin and Prescott did, is labor in that model? Keynes put labor front and center in the Depression. Can business cycle theory help us understand labor dynamics that leads to wage increase. Sure, sure, sure it can. And in many, in some of those models, there is labor. Now, models of labor behavior and labor supply in particular are uh, complicated. They, things that we don't understand about some of that. But nonetheless, the models can do, can do that. We're honored to bring you Charles Plosser, the former president of the Philadelphia Fed. Uh, Professor Plosser, there was... Pushing 10 years ago, I can't believe I'm saying that, a fabulous moment at the Dallas Fed in honor of John B. Taylor of Stanford University. A bunch of worthies like yourself got together, including Bennett McCollum of Carnegie Mellon. Lawrence Cristiano had a wonderful paper, Rules and Discretion. Mm -hmm. The simplicity, all these other fancy titles about real-time data and bond premiums, just rules and discretion. For our global audience Explain the debate and the heat around it of rules and discretion. How long have I got? <laughs> 30 seconds, and Gura's got a question. No, the debate is pretty, actually pretty simple, and the debate is a very old one. It goes back to um, uh, Simons back in the 1930s. And the question is, is it better for policymakers to behave in a systematic rule-like manner, or is it better for them to behave with discretion which essentially means to make the choices they have at the time and try to do the best thing at the right time, which is the way that it's usually put. 
And the problem with that is that um, for most economists and many economists, that debate was settled a long time ago. And, and partly by uh, Kidlin Prescott, as you were talking about. But Mike, Mike I, I was testifying actually with John Taylor just last week. Um, and um, I think the problem is, is that policymakers like discretion. And it's hard for them to give that discretion up because they say, well, we need to be able to do the right thing at the right time. But that, that, also, that discretion also means they can do the wrong thing at the wrong time or the wrong thing at the right time. Mm. And so you increase volatility and uncertainty about the path of policy with discretion, and that's the problem. Charles Poster, what does this say about the relationship between the Federal Reserve uh, and lawmakers on Capitol Hill? Uh, there are those on Capitol Hill pushing for more rules-based approach from the Fed. Can anything be done to make that relationship better between the Fed and Congress? To make that relationship better? Yeah. Well, I, I'm terribly worried that the direction that some proposals for reform are actually going to result in making the Fed more political mm -hmm. uh, rather than more accountable. So I, I stress that it's important for the Fed to be accountable. But that the path to that isn't through making it more political. Mm -hmm. And I'm terribly worried about making sure that whatever Congress does, it gets that balance right. So um, the Fed already works with rules. Uh -huh. They could be a lot more transparent about what they do do with rules, and, and they could head off a lot of this debate. But I do think there ought to be pressure on the Fed to be more rule-like. Do, do you think that the regional presidents speak too much, that there is too little unanimity, that, that the Fed could do better by having a more unified voice? I recall first seeing you at the, the Fed's 100th anniversary conference at the Philadelphia Fed a few years ago now. Uh, you gave a speech and you met with reporters afterward and gave some comments. Fed presidents do talk a lot. Does that somehow dilute the message of the, 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 the importance, perhaps, of, of the Federal Reserve when you have so many different people speaking about what the Fed is doing? I wouldn't mind the Federal Reserve becoming less important, actually. Uh -huh. So, But, no, I think, that, I think that's – no, I don't agree with that. I think, in fact, that it's important that the president speak. I actually think it would be better if the governors spoke more often expressing their view. I mean, at it, 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 the Fed, we see – Striving for consensus. Everybody sure. agree. And what that does is lead to poor communications because people don't know what the debates I are about. I think that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. And the other, yeah. the other thing it is it leads to groupthink. Mm. And you want to not have groupthink at the Fed. And the only way to get that is to have people sharing ideas, different ideas, to keep the debate lively and honest. How do policymakers deal with potentiality, I think, of the conversations we've been having here about the prospects for infrastructure reform or infrastructure spending, tax reform, uh, tax cuts. Uh, we're going into a meeting here today and tomorrow. How are they processing what could happen here uh, with a Trump administration in the new year? Are they thinking about that or do they have to sort of think in the vacuum of the Eccles building and, and, and not give thought to what any potential implications on the economy might be from, from laws like those? Well, I think they, they clearly do have to give it some thought yeah. and they will give it some thought. Yeah. But they don't know any more than you and I do right. about what's likely to transpire from Congress. And uh, I think I made the point earlier about whether the, the fiscal decisions made by Congress focus on enhancing productivity versus just stimulating aggregate demand in sort of a Keynesian, naive Keynesian sure. kind of sense. And I think it, the, the effect on the economy is going to be much about which of those paths end up being taken, and we just don't know for sure yet. Is the Taylor rule still useful in policy? If you were sitting here with Rick Mishkin, who's got a different view than Charles Plosser, could the two of you agree that there is efficacy to the Taylor rule? 
Absolutely. I think Rick and I would, would agree wholeheartedly on some of that. I mean, I think, I think the, the, there's a difference between saying, you know, we're going to follow the Taylor rule lavishly mm-hmm. or what value are rules for policymaking. And I think Rick Mishkin would say this. He and I have known each other for 40 years, and he, he would probably say some of the same things I'd be saying. There is value to rule-like behavior. Now we can get down in the weeds and talk about the details of that, but I think we would agree on that. Are we, are we at full uh, employment now from, from Charles Plosser's standpoint when you look at the, the labor market right now? Are you satisfied with where things are? From the statistical point of yes. view, it's hard to argue we're not pretty darn close right. to full employment. <laughs> now, th- that doesn't necessarily say that we ought to be satisfied with that, or there are not other things that can be done, or why is the labor force right. participation rate so low? Why isn't it higher? Mm-hmm. But those are right. not things monetary policy can do anything about. Very quickly, I talked to Gary Schilling the other day about good and bad uh, inflation. Can we have a good inflation with a Trump reflation? I don't see any inflation as being necessarily good. Hmm. End of story. Paul Volcker once said, why do you guys have a 2% inflation target? Why not not zero? Remember, (laughs) I remember it well. This has been fabulous, folks. This is we don't do this too often. That was a wonk fest with Professor (laughs) Plosser. Send me emails, et cetera, David Gurr, John Tucker. On Kidlin and Prescott and all the other theory, Rick Michigan and John B. Taylor that we spoke of. You can send it to John. This was really special. (laughs) Professor Plosser, thank you. Thank you so much. Charles Plosser is the former president of the Philadelphia uh, Fed. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.